0: Eighty-three years ago, on the 9th of April, 1940, Adolf Hitler launched his Blitzkrieg across Europe. In less than three months, Denmark, Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, and France were all under the Nazi yoke. Allied troops have been pushed to the English Channel, awaiting what looked like certain annihilation on the beaches of Dunkirk. However... English fishermen and tugboat captains crossed the channel in their vessels and evacuated 338,000 troops while the Royal Air Force kept the Luftwaffe at bay in the skies overhead as the miracle of Dunkirk. But Great Britain and her Commonwealth countries, including Canada, now stood alone against Nazi Germany. The odds were overwhelming. Britain was outmatched in every way. This was a time for a strong national leader, a man who could unite the nation, a man with clear, a clear militaristic vision, a man who could instill confidence and pride in a nation whose expeditionary force had been soundly defeated, as well as bolster a fearful civilian population. The new Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, was such a man. You can probably tell I'm a bit of a fanboy. (laughs) And in his most famous speech, a speech delivered to the House of Commons after the miracle of Dunkirk, Churchill told the nation of Great Britain and the world, I won't try the accent, but even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip, into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fall. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. That's the sort of leader a nation needs in a time of war. And Churchill as the leader of a nation fighting for its survival, was very conscious of his public image. Uh, This man was Great Britain personified. Churchill was like an English bulldog, always chomping on a big cigar with a twinkle of defiance in his eye, defiant in the face of adversity and overwhelming odds. That's the kind of leader the world admires. All glory, no shame. There's a man who can rally people to his cause. The Messiahship of Jesus stands in stark contrast to such a notion. Christian, here's our leader. Mark eight thirty one. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days... Rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And just listen to our king's rally the troops speech. The speech that's supposed to transform our thinking, our entire worldview, as we engage in battle with the odious apparatus of Satan and his demons. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Winston Churchill could speak of fighting on the beaches and in the streets and make it sound glorious. He had British housewives saying, We shall never surrender. We defy you, Germany. But Jesus speaks of denying ourselves, picking up our cross, an instrument of torture and execution and deepest shame, and following him to Golgotha in death. We're not denying ourselves and dying for an ideal like freedom or democracy. We're suffering shame, brothers and sisters, and counting everything lost for a person, for Jesus. Beloved, the cross of our Messiah defines our discipleship to Jesus. As Christians, the life we live is defined by the suffering and death Jesus endured. All Christians, not just missionaries serving in Pakistan, the cross of our Messiah defines our discipleship to Jesus. All Christians as christians the life we live is defined by the suffering and death that jesus endured and if we're ashamed of jesus and his words if we refuse to deny ourselves and follow jesus in death jesus says the son of man will be ashamed of us when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels our account today begins in verse 22 as jesus arrives by boat in Bethsaida a town on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as he arrives, Jesus and his disciples are met by some people who have heard of his reputation as a healer, and they beg Jesus to to touch this blind man, to lay his hands on a blind man. Now, in the life of our two churches, there's been a one-week hiatus between this account and the one directly preceding it, the, the yeast conversation Jesus had with his disciples in the boat. And if we're not careful... We could miss a major theme that's carrying over. When we read of the blind man in verse 22, we're supposed to recall what Jesus said to his disciples back in verse 17. Look with me there, verse 17 of chapter 8. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? The evangelist is juxtaposing these two accounts. In the first account, in the boat, Jesus is emphasizing blindness, spiritual blindness. In the second, he's emphasizing sight, physical sight. So pay attention, close attention. Mark wants us to see beyond a mere physical miracle here. There's something more going on. Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Again, note the cultural emphasis on touch associated with healing. We looked at this last week. Verse 23, He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. Now that's just an incidental point, but it's, one of, it's always been one of my just favorite details in this story. It offers so much insight, I think, into Jesus' loving personality, our Lord's care, our Lord's compassion. The God of the universe "...personally takes a blind sinner's hand and leads him." It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. "...He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, "'Do you see anything?' He looked up and said, "'I see people. They look like trees walking around.'" Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes... Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So, just as he did in 733, Jesus heals a man by applying spittle to the affected area, in this case his blind eyes. Lots of Hellenistic healers used spittle. Uh, which means jesus is entering into this man's thought world he's letting this man know he is about to heal him today this would be like going into the doctor's office and the nurse rubbing an alcohol swab on your arm you know you're about to get a shot you're about to get some medicine Uh, but don't be distracted by this picture of jesus spitting in someone's face it's the least important feature of the story what's actually being emphasized in this account is sight now In our NIV English translation, several of the words in this passage used for sight and seeing are the same. But in the Greek text, there are eight different words used for nine instances of seeing in verses 23 to 25. The piling up of all of those synonyms is deliberate. The redundancy of of references to sight and seeing, it provides counterbalance to the redundancy of accusations of blindness and misunderstanding in the previous story. Do, Do you recall how thick Jesus laid it on back in verse 17? It's just bam, bam, bam. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Do you still not understand? Right? And, and there's probably another link between the two accounts. Usually when Jesus performs a miracle, he, 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 makes a, he speaks an authoritative word. He makes a pronouncement. And it's done, right? The deed is done. The miracle is accomplished. But in this account, Jesus asks, asks a question halfway through the miracle. The miracle takes place in two stages. But Jesus is the omnipotent God, anointed by the Holy Spirit without measure. Our Lord could instantly heal every blind person on the planet just by willing it. So what's going on? Jesus heals this man in two stages because he willed there to be a process to the cure. A two-stage cure suggests a process of revelation as much for the disciples as for the blind man a process of revelation halfway through an incomplete miracle jesus asks do you see anything verse 23 and the blind man responds that he can see people who look like trees walking around which just sounds plain weird right but if it's appropriate to link this text to the narrative just before it then the blind man's response to jesus question is a clue That the disciples themselves will be enabled by Jesus to begin the process of moving from blindness to sight in regard to the nature of his Messiahship. Ah, alright, in other words, we can see, and we can see this in the first point listed in our bulletins, the physical healing of the man's eyes is a picture of what's about to happen to the disciples' spiritual sight when they confess Jesus to be the Messiah, albeit a Messiah who does not suffer and die. Back in the boat, the disciples were completely blind. But that's about to change on the road to Caesarea Philippi. The first stage of their blindness will lift and they will see that Jesus is the Messiah. They will be able to see people who look like trees walking around. Why is their sight incomplete? Because they still don't see the kind of Messiah Jesus is or what discipleship to, to the Messiah entails. They're still thinking in terms of politics Military conquest and glory. Not shame, rejection, and death. They only half-see. It's like people walking around looking like trees. And so we come now to the continental divide in Mark's gospel. This is the halfway point. And apart from the Lord's death, our Lord's death and resurrection, this is the most important section in the book. Peter's confession of Jesus' messiahship. Up to this point in Jesus' public ministry, responses of faithfulness to Jesus have been scarce as hen's teeth. People have been slow of understanding. They've been hard of heart. And declarations of Jesus' true identity as God's Messiah that's only been given by Mark himself, Jesus, God the Father at Jesus' baptism, and demons. That's it. Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi represents a confessional breakthrough. And and from here on, from this point in the story, Jesus starts moving south toward Jerusalem where he will be crucified. It's the continental divide of the book. Verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was about 25 miles north of Galilee. Its inhabitants are largely Gentile. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So for the first time, Jesus himself raises the question of his identity in Mark's gospel. But can you imagine if I were to ask that same question right now? If I were to do it. Josh Beatty, Who do the people say I am? <laughs> uh, brother, you would instantly recognize my insufferable egoism to ask such a thing, right? Who do people say you are, John? What's that supposed to mean? That you're not a man like other men, that you're somehow different? And you're, and you're asking me if the people have recognized this important fact? And what? You're asking me, Josh Beattie, because I'm more in touch with the common people than you are, John? Who do you think you are? <coughs> But Jesus can ask that question with a straight face. Who do people say I am? Just let that simmer for a bit. That's amazing. Verse 28. They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. He was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And still others, one of the prophets. And, and I'm sure the average Israelite thought they were paying Jesus a great compliment by comparing it to such illustrious biblical figures. Again, if I were to ask, who do the people say I am? And you replied, they think you're Charles Spurgeon, Pastor John. Come back from the dead. Or maybe John Calvin. They can't tell the difference because your sermons are so brilliant and scintillating. I'd say, right on. Thank you. That's so flattering. Those men are, are, are such illustrious figures. You've done me a great honor by comparing me with guys like that. But what about Jesus? Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. That is, one of the prophets long ago who's come back to life. The fact is, not only are all those answers just plain wrong, Jesus isn't any of those people, but those comparisons infinitely degrade Jesus, don't they? To lump Jesus in with any Old Testament prophet or any other religious teacher or figure in all of human history is to deny his divine uniqueness. It's actually an insult. Mark visits this theme again in chapter nine on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the apostle Peter makes the same sort of what he feels to be flattering comparison of Jesus to, to Moses and Elijah. But the authority Jesus has already demonstrated throughout this book doesn't allow him to be defined by something other than himself and his relationship with his father. Anything else compromises his uniqueness. Who do people say I am? Verse 28, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. At last. It's taken eight chapters at last. We finally have this confessed. For the first time in Jesus' ministry, way up north, way up in Gentile territory, in Caesarea Philippi, a human being proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah, God's anointed one. This is the first time in Mark's gospel. And folks, I can never mention Caesarea Philippi without telling a story about my dad. Dad's retired now, but in the early 90s, he went on a pastor's tour of Israel uh, the sort of tour that takes in all the biblical sites. It was a first-class tour, but these pastors were getting the privilege for a bargain basement rate. The agency's hope was that these pastors would bring their congregations back with them to Israel and take the tour at full price. So they were getting the discount, and, uh, but the tour was organized and led by non-Christian Jews, citizens of the State of Israel. So this group of pastors, they did the tour. It took about a week, and on the final night... There was a dinner at the King David Hotel, the most renowned hotel in Jerusalem. And during the dinner, the Jewish tour guides asked each pastor sitting around the table, what was your favorite part of the tour? What was the most memorable part of the whole tour? Dad said there were 12 or 10 or 12 men. Some said the Sea of Galilee. Others said the Garden Tomb, Calvary. Uh, They came to the last guy. Dad said he was an unassuming, quiet Irishman. And... This man said, quoting Matthew 16:16, 16, 16, the parallel account to our text today. For me, the most memorable part was our visit to Caesarea Philippi, where the Apostle Peter made his great confession about Jesus. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Dad said you could have heard a pin drop. An unashamed confession of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God, proclaimed to Jewish tour guides in the dining hall of the King David Jerusalem Hotel. It looks ahead to verse 38, doesn't it? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with His holy angels. However, even Peter's confession, you are the Messiah, that needs additional definition, doesn't it? Alone, it's inadequate. You can confess that and not go to heaven. You actually don't understand who Jesus is at all, necessarily, by just saying that. While it's undoubtedly true, Peter's confession is still a long way off from a full comprehension of who Jesus really is. And again... By linking Jesus' two-stage healing of the man, uh, the the, the blind man, uh, by linking that with Peter's partial confession, Mark sets the agenda for what follows now, okay? So true sight, true sight means embracing Jesus' declaration that the Messiah must also suffer and die. And now Jesus explains to his disciples what kind of Messiah he is. He is a rejected Messiah. He's a Messiah who dies. He's a Messiah who is steeped in shame. Only be raised again on the third day. Verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And and Jesus does this for the same reason. He doesn't make it a habit of going into the town square of each village he visits. And announcing straight off. Here I am folks. The long expected Messiah. It's me. Why not? It's who he is right? Why doesn't Jesus just lay all his cards out on the table? It's for the reason revealed in verse 31. And remember, this is information Jesus reveals now for the first time in Mark's gospel. And it's positively scandalous. Verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this. But all this plain speaking is absolutely outrageous to the ears of his disciples. God forbid. God's anointed one wins. The Messiah isn't killed by Israel's religious leaders, as Jesus is saying here. You see what's happened? When Jesus finally speaks about his messianic status, he redefines it beyond all recognition, at least as far as Jewish popular thinking is concerned. The meaning of Jesus' life and mission as the long-expected Messiah isn't about victory, success, and glory. It's about rejection, suffering, death, and shame. And, and the Apostle Peter, he isn't about to stand idly by in the face of this nonsense. Now, why it's hard for us to relate to Peter's reaction is because the church has had 2,000 years to assimilate this theology. It's just a given. Of course, the Messiah dies in shame and rises from death. Jesus is simultaneously the conquering king and the suffering servant. We know that. Every Christian knows that. The New Testament is very clear on this. Jesus suffers and dies vicariously as a substitute for his people, for all who will ever call upon his name for salvation. The Messiah bears our sins and suffers on the cross so that we don't have to bear our sins and suffer in hell. Our sin... Is imputed to him. Is punished in his body. And we are forgiven. This is the good news of the gospel. It's what every genuine Christian has believed for two millennia. But for a first century Jew. A suffering Messiah is an oxymoron. And true to his heritage. Peter recoils at the thought. This is scandalous stuff. Jesus just said. Verse 32. Peter took him aside. Which is interesting in itself. <laughs> but he took him aside and began to rebuke him. And the word for rebuke here is customarily used for rebuking demons, the worst and ultimate form of evil. He began to rebuke his Lord. That's how bad the notion of suffering messiahship is to the apostle Peter. it has got kind of to like rebuke demons here. Verse 33 But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In particular, the love of power and status. Merely human concerns. And we see this later in the disciples jockeying for greatness and in their elitist exclusion of others. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, this is a constant theme. Verse 32. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So do you see, Jesus rebukes Peter because Peter's conception of the Messiah and the Messiah's ministry doesn't include the cross. It doesn't include God's glorious Messiah being rejected and executed. And that makes it satanic. Jesus says so. Get behind me, Satan. In trying to avert Jesus from suffering in a way that he cannot know, Peter is opposing a great mystery of God. Jesus sees in Peter's rebuke satanic opposition to the essential design of the Incarnation. But notice... Even in Jesus' explanation, penal substitutionary atonement is nowhere mentioned. Jesus doesn't cut and paste Romans 3, 21 to 26, into his response. So even Jesus' explanation at this point isn't the full explanation. There's more to come. Further revelation is required. Brothers and sisters, I want us to picture our leader, our king, our Messiah, our God, naked, naked. Ashamed, despised, nailed to a cross. Picture our Savior in your mind's eye, hanging on that wretched tree, and know this. The true nature of our Christian discipleship is indissolubly linked with his suffering messiahship. How so? This flows directly into our fourth and final point in the point of application Number four, Christians must suffer. I have another World War II illustration for you. Now, Pleasant, if our two churches do merge, you're going to be hearing a lot of these. It's a preoccupation of mine. So, George Patton was the general of U.S. Third Army, the largest American fighting force in Europe during the Second World War. And on June the 5th, 1944, so the day before the D-Day invasion, General Patton delivered a speech to 15,000 troops, a speech that has since become immortalized by the actor George C. Scott in the 1970 film Patton. Patton wrote only briefly of his oration in his diary that evening quote, As in all my talks, I stressed fighting and killing. End quote. <laughs> the gist of the general's speech was that Americans are winners who love to fight. Patton claimed that all real Americans love the sting and clash of battle. Americans play to win, and that's why America has never lost nor ever would lose a war, because the very idea of losing is hateful to an American. Patton went on to say he felt sorry for the German soldiers that Third Army would soon be facing in battle. He felt sorry for them. They weren't just going to shoot the Germans, and this is a direct quote minus the swear words, Third army is going to rip out their living guts and use them to grease the treads of our tanks. All right, now bear in mind, this is, a, this is a four-star general sporting two ivory-handled forty five caliber revolvers on each hip, speaking to 15,000 soldiers the day before D-Day. I'm not sure how women respond to this sort of rhetoric. Women are funny. It doesn't do anything for you, I know. But but if a man like that, a man like George Patton, says those things, those sorts of things to a group of soldiers, 24 hours before storming the beaches of Normandy, it stirs up something primal. It's a direct infusion of testosterone to the heart. It fills fighting men with confidence. That's why he's doing it. And when a soldier sees bravery and manliness in his leader, then he's glad the couple... Uh, his fortunes with his own. The private with his rifle thinks, whatever happens to George Patton, to General Patton, this paragon of manhood and confidence and bravery, whatever happens to that great man, happens to me. We're a fighting unit. Our fortunes are tied together. And if General Patton is victorious, I too will be victorious. So do you see? Patton's generalship has a direct bearing on that private's soldiership. Because who wants to be the follower of a weak man, clothed in shame and defeat? Nobody. It's proof positive he's unfit to lead. The messiahship of Jesus stands in direct contrast to these notions. There were no kingly displays of power that day on Calvary's Hill 2,000 years ago. Only what looked like to humanize a pathetic spectacle of weakness and shame. And if that's our leader, beloved, if that's our God and King hanging on that cross, naked, bloody, the spittle of his persecutors dribbling through his plucked beard, then what's in store for the citizens of his kingdom? In the light of our Lord's odious cross, What does true discipleship to Jesus look like? What does greatness look like in a kingdom ruled over by a rejected and crucified king? And what will it cost us to follow such a king? As believers, these questions are fundamental to our self-understanding. Truly, they're as basic as it gets. Jesus' messiahship has a direct bearing on our discipleship. The kind of life we live is based on the kind of death Jesus endured. By God's grace, there are a number of people with us today looking to be baptized in the coming weeks. Praise God! But first, heed the words of Jesus. This is what you're signing up for, friend. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Follow me out to the place of execution. And that's not an embarrassing bit of doctrine that the church keeps in the closet until the neophytes have been good and baptized. And then we wheel it out. We all start here. We begin with this. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now I'm sure what Jesus' disciples wanted to hear, what they were expecting to hear from the lips of their Messiah King as they start traveling down towards Jerusalem was something like George Patton's Third Army speech. Right? Israelites love a winner. And we're going to grease our chariot wheels with the living guts of those Roman dogs. Right? What would King David have said? Something like, strap on your swords, men. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm personally going to cut off Pontius Pilate's head. Yeah, that's how the king of Israel is supposed to talk. But instead, they get this. A rejected and suffering Messiah. Jesus is the king, all right. But he's a king who dies in shame. And we, Canadians living in 2024, we need to understand that the cross in Jesus' time was an image of extreme repugnance. There are no modern forms of execution that carry the same cultural overtones of shame that crucifixion did in the first century. You didn't talk about crucifixion in polite society. It's not a big deal now to talk about it, of course. People today wear cross earrings and cross necklaces. There are crosses on hospitals, on church steeples. But in the first century, the cross was associated with cruelty, pain, torture, death, dehumanization, and shame. The victim died a dog's death hanging in unbearable agony, naked for days. In fact, it was such a horrible way to die. Apart from Caesar's sanction, no Roman citizen could be executed in this fashion. Only slaves, barbarians, and aliens. And apart from the torture, the cultural associations conjured up images of evil and corruption and abysmal rejection. When we say... It's my cross to bear. When we say that, we're talking about our crabby mother-in-law. Right? But the only people who picked up their cross in this day were condemned criminals. And everyone knew that. It was just like that. As soon as he said that, you're thinking condemned criminal going out to be executed. The condemned prisoner was tied to his cross member. The patibulum, it was called. And was forced to carry his cross out to the place of execution. And once you picked up your cross... There was no hope for you. There was only shameful and excruciating death. Jesus calls us to pick up our cross of self-denial, shame, disgrace, and death. Death to self, death to reputation, death to comfort, death to this world, even physical death. But Jesus' language isn't an invitation to spiritual masochism and misery. Brothers and sisters, this is an invitation to life. This is what life, what true life is all about. As God intends life to be for all of his people. It's right here in this text. The way of the cross. The way of the cross. But we've been so duped by unbiblical ways of thinking that what our Lord says here in these verses looks like a miserable sort of existence. Surely, we tell ourselves, self-focus. Self-focus is where all the bounty and joy and contentment and purpose and meaning in life is found. No. Self-fulfillment is never the controlling issue. Ever. That's why Jesus warns us an infallible rule of the kingdom is that self-focus issues in death. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. Verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The irony being that this one thing, our life, cannot be saved by preserving it, but only by forsaking it forsaking it in favor of following Jesus in death. We have to start thinking this way. Elizabeth Howard was born in Belgium in 1926, where her parents served as missionaries. She moved to the U.S. as an infant and went on to attend Wheaton College, where she studied classical Greek. Elizabeth wanted to be a missionary. She wanted to work in the area of unwritten languages and Bible translation. While at college, Elizabeth met her future husband, Jim Elliott. After graduation, and for five years before their engagement, Jim and Elizabeth served in different parts of Ecuador. Elizabeth eventually accepted Jim's marriage proposal and the condition attached to it to learn the Ecuadorian Quechua language before they got married. and They did so, and in 1953, Jim and Elizabeth married in Ecuador and continued their work in that nation. But Jim had always wanted to enter the territory of an unreached tribe. To live with them and proclaim the gospel to them. So he chose the Aukas, a fierce group of people whom no one had succeeded in meeting without being killed. And he knew the dangers. But in his journal entry for October 28, 1949, so seven years before making contact, Jim expressed his belief that work dedicated to Jesus was more important than his life. He wrote in his journal, and this would later become famous, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's Mark 8.35. Right? Jim Elliot understood Mark 8, 35. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And so after discovering the location of the tribe, Jim and four other missionaries entered Alka territory. Nate, Saint, Ed, Macaulay, Peter Fleming, and Roger Uderian. All five were killed. They were all speared to death. All five men denied themselves. They picked up their cross. They gave their life for Jesus and for the gospel. In fact... This very week marks the 68th anniversary of their martyrdom. One of the most well-known cases of martyrdom in the last century. Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's widowed wife, she also understood Mark 8.35, and she built her life around it. She stayed in Ecuador with her 10-month-old daughter, continuing to live among the Quichua tribe. A little while later, God opened a door. She met two Alka women, women from the same tribe that had killed her husband. Those women came to live with her and the Kichwa tribe, and they taught her their tribe's language. So then Elizabeth, along with the sister of one of the other men who were killed, went as a missionary herself to serve the tribe that killed her husband. And in God's sovereign providence, this eventually led to the conversion of many Elkas, including some of those involved in the killing. So tell me, where Jim... And Elizabeth Elliot, religious fanatics? Is that just a stupid thing to do? Was Jim a fool? And Elizabeth an undignified human carpet for these murderers to walk on? No. They were Christians. Christians who understood Mark 8 and the way of the cross. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So, Christian, be encouraged. If following the way of Jesus in death to self, death to uh, ambition, if that's more important than your own existence, you will save your life. That's what Jesus promises. Obviously, as that's understood in the light of Jesus' cross and resurrection and our God-given faith in Jesus. But be warned... If your own existence if your own life is more important than Jesus you will lose both Jesus and your life so search your heart you need to be honest are you saving your life in this life what what does in fact denying yourself shouldering your cross member and following Jesus in death look like for you day-to-day i mean it's it's so fundamental to christian discipleship what does it look like how do you exemplify that there's a conversation for the ride home with your spouse ask them give them permission to tell you what they see ask the person you're in a discipleship relationship with be honest This, this might sound raw but when push comes to shove singles who are you willing to date Do you date unbelievers? Do you allow for emotional entanglements with unbelievers? You for them, they for you. How far are you willing to push that envelope? With each passing year, are your biblical standards slipping? I once had a friend I thought I knew very well, a godly Christian woman. But then I found out two weeks before the wedding that she was marrying a very moral man, but someone who was not trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I had uh, taken her fiancé out for dinner, and after a few simple questions, the false gospel of Rome shone through clear as day. My friend had deceived me. She had lied to me about her relationship with this man over the course of many months, because she knew I wasn't gonna give my blessing. So I asked to meet with them both. And there they were one week before their nuptials in my apartment sitting on the couch. I was sitting across them in a chair and I told my friend, my good friend whom I'd known for years, sister, you can't follow through with this. This man is not trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Folks, I was certain her fiance was gonna up and punch me in the face. I don't think anyone has been more offended by anything I've ever said in my whole life. But I I wasn't the bad guy here. When the rubber met the road, my friend wasn't prepared to deny herself, to pick up her cross and follow Jesus in death to self-interest. Rather, the consideration of loneliness and companionship Heavy cultural and family expectations to marry by a certain age. Children. They had already bought a condo together. So money considerations. The emotional pain of breaking things off at this point. That was outweighing her Christian discipleship. The cross of our Messiah defines our discipleship to Jesus. I once had a member of New City email me asking if I knew of any good churches in a particularly remote area of Canada where he had been offered a lucrative career. He had already said yes to the job offer and would be living there for the foreseeable future. But he hadn't even bothered looking into the all-important matter of there being a healthy church in the vicinity before making that decision. It didn't even cross his mind. He just assumed something half-decent would be there, and half-decent was all he really wanted anyway. Because at the center of his life, controlling his decisions, controlling his priorities, was his career, and what that career provided. The cross of our Messiah defines our discipleship to Jesus. So let me ask, Christian, how much cross-carrying... Would you be willing to trade away for the house you want? For the reputation that you want? For the spouse that you want? For the freedom you want? For the body you want? For the friends you want? For the church you want? I don't know about you, but I hear Satan's whispers in my ear every hour of every day, Greatness is found in power, John. Joy and happiness is to be found in those good things the world affords. Those things that make you distinct from everyone around you. Things you can exalt in and feel proud about. True contentment is to be found in things God has commanded you to forsake. Or in those things which, in his miserly providence, he has withheld from you. That's where the joy is. Every day, every hour, I hear that whisper. What's the gospel antidote? Verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can you give in exchange for their soul? Suppose you were to gain the whole world, friend. Everything you could possibly hope for. But at the cost of your eternal soul. That would be a poor bargain, according to Jesus. Verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. May God use a hard-hitting verse like that to, to sober us to the very core. Do you realize what our Lord is saying here? He's saying the future begins now. Right? Eternity begins now. So make that glad confession now. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. Shout it from the rooftops. Live like it's so. Be ashamed of Jesus and His cross no longer. Lest He be ashamed of you when He returns in all the glory of His Father and with the glory of His holy angels. Make that good confession today. Deny yourself today. Pick up your cross today. Die to self today. Die to the applause of the sinful and adulterous generation today and follow Jesus as his true disciple on the road to Calvary. Our discipleship is linked to Jesus' suffering Messiahship. Never forget it. Amen.